Let's take our Bible and go to James chapter 3. In your bulletin, by the way, you have a sheet. You're probably wondering, why is there a sheet in my bulletin with three hymns that are there? And keep that near you. We're going to come to that here in a little while as we sing together. James 3, this is a well-known portion of God's Word. I know that, you know that. And as I read it, you're going to wonder, well, why do we need a sermon on this? You read it and it's convicting enough. But I have plenty to say. And I was sort of hoping I could get through all of it today because it's so convicting, but I can't. I have to do it today and next week. And uh, the Lord will, in his mercy, show us our sin and yet the way in which we can honor him with our words. I want to preach today, James 3, verses 1 to 5, titled, Watch Your Words. Watch your words, because your tongue is tiny but mighty. Tiny but mighty. Follow with me, James 3. I'm going to read all of verses 1 to 12, just again so we can get the full context of the paragraph. James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. It was a seminary class. The teacher stated the following. Constantine, the first emperor of Rome, professed and then legalized Christianity. But he was not a true born-again believer. Constantine used Christianity for his own political advantage. One student in the seminary classroom audibly gasped. 
raised his hand. And he insisted to the professor, no, 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 no. He was a true believer. And the professor said, well, no, he was not a true believer. The student became visibly upset. And then he began to attack the teacher verbally. And the teacher then responded by becoming defensive and angry at the student and lashing back at him. And this thing got so heated in the seminary classroom, there was so much anger that the class had to be dismissed. The following week, they met again for class. And they meet for class again, and the teacher resumes the lecture on the same subject that he brought up the week before. And the professor said, as I said, Constantine merely professed Christianity, but he was not truly a believer. And the student raised his hand again. Everybody thought, oh, here we go again. The student raised his hand, and he said, sir... I thought you said Augustine was not a true believer. Well, no, said the professor. I I was talking about Constantine, the Roman emperor. And the student said, well, I agree with you then. I agree with you. I agree with you. The power of words. The power of a word And the impact that words and a statement can have can be so great and so widespread. Now, you know this, and you've experienced this. I know this. We've all experienced it together. You have said things that you wish you wouldn't have said. You have said things that you walk away thinking, why did I just say that at this time? in that tone to those people. You have heard things that you wish you wouldn't have heard. I wish I wouldn't have heard that. I wish I wouldn't have said that. Because words have power. Words have power. It's like when the leader of a country on public television says, we are in war. The power and effect of a short little statement can have quite huge consequences, can it? How has your speech been lately? Think about how you've talked this week, this month. Think about the relationships that you've had. Think about your workplace. Think about what you've said to others in your home, at your work. Relationships, friendships, online, on media. How has your speech been lately? If the Lord were to describe your speech in one word, what would he say? 
James knows the power of words, and that's why James is including a lengthy teaching section on our words in James chapter 3. Now, the author of the book of James is the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He's the brother of our Lord Jesus, and, and as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, he's writing to early Christians, and he is calling them to practical Christianity. Pastor James is a good pastor. He wants the people of God to live out their faith. He knows that they profess Christ. He knows that they know truth. He knows that they sit under the teaching of the word, but he's calling them to faith in action. Faith in action. This is like a a boots on the ground, real life, day in, day out, showing your life of faith in action of good works. In James chapter 3, it's like Pastor James is going to zoom in with the camera on this little thing right here in your mouth, your tongue. Now, we've already looked at a lot of practical topics. In James chapter 1, James dealt with the power of the tongue. He showed us in James 1 that we ought to handle trials well. We ought to handle temptation well. We ought to hear and obey the word. We ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then in James chapter 2, he showed the sin of favoritism or the sin of partiality and the sin that 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 can have even as it comes out of our mouth. And then he showed that true faith shows itself in a life of good works. We saw that last week with Abraham and Rahab. But, but now in chapter 3, he really zooms in on the tongue, and in the 12 verses that I read, we're going to look at it today and next week, there are really two main sections. In verses 1 to 5, James shows the power of the tongue. We're looking at that today, the power of the tongue. Next week, we're looking at the danger of the tongue. And they're related. They go together. The power of the tongue and the danger of the tongue. Or maybe we could keep the peas. The power of the tongue and the poison of the tongue. Oh, the tongue is so small and yet it's so powerful. The tongue is so small, but yet it can bring so much harm. I mean, I've been teaching my kids, your mouth, your words could bring blessing to someone for their life, or it could destroy a life. I mean, words could destroy a church. They could destroy a family. They could destroy a marriage. They could destroy your life. That's why Proverbs says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. So we want to look at that. We want to look at how Pastor James is going to teach us, how he's going to shepherd us so that we can hear the word of God and the truth of God learning about the tongue. And today I want to give you two very practical lessons. This is the outline. I want to give you two very practical lessons about your words. And I want to give them to you and then we're going to walk through it together. The first is this in verses 1 and 2. Watch. O teachers, watch out, O teachers. You will have a strict judgment. And then number two, I want to give you a second practical lesson that James gives us. Watch your tongue. It's small, but powerful. So first, we're going to say, watch, O teachers, you'll have a strict judgment. And then the second lesson that James gives us is to watch your tongue. 
It is small, but powerful. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2 with this very simple and yet very important and yet very relevant lesson for us. Watch, O teachers. You will have a strict judgment. Verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect or a complete man, able to bridle the whole body as well. I have read these verses before. I know them well. I have studied them, and they are fearful. I get it. So I've preached it to my own heart this week. I'm going to preach to my own heart even now. You get to listen in a little bit to this. But we all need to hear this. Teachers will have a stricter judgment. This is why Jesus, in his earthly life, said to the false teachers, Woe to you! You make a convert and you make him twice a son of hell as yourselves. You are blind guides, he said. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Matthew 23. I I know it. I know the fearful danger it is. Because I see it in the word of being someone who mishandles the word of God. I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. I pray that God would guard me and all the teachers here from that. It is a privilege to serve Christ. It is a privilege to serve the people of God. It is a privilege for me to spend my time during the week in prayer and the ministry of the word. To guard the flock, to pray for you, to Shepherd to disciple to preach and teach. It is an unspeakable privilege for me to do that. And at the same time, it is a weighty and fearful responsibility. God tells me I'm going to be judged more strictly for what I say. I am going to be held more strictly for what I say because of how I handle the word of God. Now, I want want to preface what I'm about to say with a few things that are important. Number one, it is a very good thing if a man aspires to the office of eldership. 1 Timothy 3, 1, if a man has a God-given desire for leadership, that's a good thing. So don't read these verses and think, ha, I did desire eldership. Now I never want to be a leader again. This is not to discourage anyone from it. But it is a sobering call for self-examination. It is a sobering call for examination of our own tongue because leadership is an influential responsibility from God. I take the word, I study the word, I pray over the word, I craft a sermon, I preach it, and it is my duty to teach you faithfully. It is a God-given mandate for a man of God to preach the word of God, right? For 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, to preach the word. 
But in these verses here, verses 1 and 2, James is not discouraging people from thinking about eldership or leadership or teaching. He's giving a very sober, a very sober teaching here that teachers will have a strict judgment. Now, this is relevant for me. I get that. It's relevant for all the elders. It's relevant for the care group leaders. Men, this is relevant for you. You teach your wives, you teach your children. This is relevant for the catechism teachers. This is relevant for those who stand and they preach the word of God. This is relevant for us as we evangelize and give the gospel. I mean, there are a lot of applications and implications to the truth here. So I take this as a word of warning to me, but but for all of us, we all need to hear this together. Teachers will have a strict judgment for the following reasons. Number one, because of the accountability Because of the accountability. Why? End of verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will incur a strict judgment. Did you know, Christian, that you're going to meet the Savior for judgment? But let's be careful about this, though. This is not a judgment for salvation, heaven, hell. We know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We know that for all who have believed have passed out of death into life, John 5, 24. We know that. This is not a judgment for heaven or hell. It is a judgment, however, based upon how we have lived and how faithful we've been. It's called in the scriptures the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. And there's three scriptures that really bring it out. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3. The bad works will be burned up, wood, hay, stubble. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. These are judgments by our works as we stand before Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's a judgment for rewards. It is a strict accounting, or the ESV, I like this, it has a greater strictness. I like that rendering. We will have a greater strictness. There is going to be a close scrutiny by the king as to how I, as his ambassador, handled his word. So I will have a strict judgment, all teachers will, because of the accountability. But number two, because of the responsibility. You know, my job as a pastor elder, a shepherd of the church, is quite simple biblically. My job biblically is to receive the word, to study the word, to pray over the word, to relay the word of God to you. And to trust God for results. That's really the job of a pastor elder. To pray, to take the word, to study the word, to shepherd in the word, to teach and preach the word. And you trust God for the results. What a huge responsibility in this duty that God has given Ezekiel 13, verse 8, God said to the false prophets, I am against you. Boy, I don't want to ever hear those words from the Lord. I'm against you. They were not faithful to the responsibility that God gave them. 
Jeremiah 5.31, the prophets prophesy falsely and they rule by their own authority. I don't want to do that. Jeremiah 29.29, they prophesy falsely, but God says, I have not sent them. So there is a responsibility for those who handle the word of God. We will have a great judgment because of the accountability, because of the responsibility. Third, because of influence. I was teaching my son earlier today, if you want to define leadership, this is good for all of us to know, leadership is influence. It's influence. It's influencing people. That's what leadership is. And leadership is influence. And all who teach and preach the word of God are influencing. But here's the problem. Jeremiah 29 verse 31. God said the false prophets are making you trust in a lie. What a tragic influence. That they were not influencing the people of God for good, but they were causing them to believe in a lie. We will have a a strict judgment because of the accountability, the responsibility, the influence. And another one, number four, we will have a strict accountability because of the commission. The commission. God calls those who teach the word to be holy. God calls those who know and teach the word to be humble, to take God's word, to study the word of God, to know the word of God, to apply the word of God to their own lives, and then to declare the word of God, listen to this, regardless of how it's received. Ezekiel 2 and 3 says that very clearly. You teach the word, you teach the word in season and out of season. Some people might want their itching ears tickled, but you keep teaching the word of God. You must feed God's people. You must reprove those who contradict. You need to hold on to the faithful word. This is the commission from the Lord for the teacher. We also will have a strict judgment, finally, number five, because of the sender. I am mindful of these amazing words in 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly charge you by God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his kingdom and his appearing. Preach the word. There is a solemn charge from God and from Christ. Jeff, you take the word. You've got to be faithful as a teacher. So James understands that. He wants us to understand it. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers. It's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing to be a teacher. But just be aware, verse 1, we will incur a stricter judgment, a greater accounting. Why? Verse 2, he gives the reason. Notice the little word for in verse 2. That's James in the Greek saying, let me explain what I mean. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. True. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So if you don't stumble in what you say, James says, you're a perfect man. Now, I don't think James is being sarcastic here. I don't think he's he's giving a fatalistic, well, you would just be a perfect person and nobody could ever do that. He's not saying that. The word perfect in James's writing is mature. 
All he's saying in verse 2 is, if you are able to control your tongue, what you say, you're a complete, a mature, a well-rounded Christian. That's what he's saying. He's not giving an impossibility. Ah, you'd be a perfect person if you could control your tongue. He's not doing that. He says, you'll be a complete, a mature, a well-rounded man able to bridle your whole body as well. What is James saying? Somebody who has self-control over their tongue will have self-control over their life. But if you can't bridle your tongue, if you can't control what you say, guess what? Their life is probably not going to be in order. That's what he's saying in verse 2. I mean, these words ought to produce in every Bible teacher or every husband, every father, every teacher, preacher. It ought to produce a fear and a trembling. It ought to produce prayer and humility. We ought to study and and give ourselves to hard work and seriousness and sobriety because of the fear of God and a passion to please God alone. A humbleness, a sobriety. We want to be those who don't stumble in what we say. We want to be those who are mature. We want to be those who are the well-rounded Christian. We want to be those who are the perfect, in James's word, the complete Christian. Now, lest somebody here is is hearing the word in verses 1 and 2, and you're hearing the sermon here about watching out, oh, teachers, we're going to be judged strictly. Lest you hear that and you think, I don't know how to apply that. That doesn't apply to me. I'm not a teacher. I guess I can go on to the next verses. Can I plead with you, every single one of you, to take the following brief words of application? And please implement them. Number one, pray for your teachers to study and teach faithfully. And the scripture for that would be 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. The second application that I would give to you is not just pray for your teachers to study and teach faithfully. Number two, pray for your teachers to honor and love Christ supremely. You know, church family, I love the church. And I love the ministry of the church. And I love the duties of the church. But guess what? If I love the work of the church, and yet I grow cold in my love for the Savior of the church, guess what? We call it burnt out. We call it whatever nowadays. It's going to get old pretty quick. Why do people burn out of ministry? It's because they lose sight of their Savior. and Their love for Him. Pray for your teachers to honor and love Christ. That's what Jesus would want. John 20, John 21. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? A third application. Pray for your teachers to lead and guide biblically. 
First Peter 5 says that we're to shepherd the flock of God. We are to exercise oversight. That's important. We are to be overseers. But we are to do that as examples. We are to shepherd and lead the flock of God that he purchased with his own blood. Pray for that. Number four, pray for your teachers to grow in humility. To grow in humility. One of the greatest plagues that resides in all of our hearts is that little thing called pride. It's deadly for the Christian. It's deadly for the minister and the teacher of the gospel. Pray that we would grow in humility. A fifth application. Pray for your teachers to rely on the power of the Spirit. To rely on the power of the Spirit. I remember church family, before I left California, I would meet at a Starbucks on a Friday morning with a couple of guys I went to seminary with and Wonderful guys, wonderful time in the word, and we would all talk about ministry and talk about pastoring. We were in three different churches, and as we would meet together and as we would talk together, we would often say to one another, well, what if you are faithful to God, but your church shrinks in size, and the people leave your church, and they go to the church down the road? I mean, they've got the booming youth group, and they've got the big children's ministry, and they've got all these cool things, and they've got the big band, and all these amazing media things, and they're leaving your church. What do you do then? And we kept asking that question, and sharpening one another, and praying through this. And eventually, we would often come to 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. I'm with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching are not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Church family, pray for those things. We need that. We want to study and teach faithfully. We want to honor and love Christ supremely. We want to lead biblically and grow in humility and rely on the power of the Spirit. Maybe a way to conclude this by way of illustration before we come to point number two is, is the great Scottish reformer John Knox. John, you've all read about John Knox, you've heard the podcast, you've read the blogs and the biographies on John Knox, this preacher of the Reformation in the country of Scotland. Here's what he said. He said, I have never once feared the devil. Never do I fear the devil. But you know what he said? But I fear and tremble every time I enter into the pulpit. I tremble. Because, because all teachers and all preachers who handle the word of God with seriousness and with care, I mean, it's like we all experience that. We can all say, he said it, I agree with him. We feel the weight of the responsibility that is ours, not only as studiers of the word, but handlers of the word, preachers of the word. Knox trembled. Because he wanted to make sure that he preached the whole counsel of God. And not only did he preach the word, but he preached it the way that God intended it to be conveyed. There is a strict 
accounting coming. James knows that. He's a pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he's writing about such things. So the first lesson, very practical for us. Number one, in your outline, watch, O teachers. You're going to have a strict judgment. But let me give you a second lesson that James gives us now in verses three to five. Here's the lesson number two for all of us again as we see this. Watch your tongue. It's small, but powerful. Have you ever met any of these seven men? Mr. Mr. Arrogant. He talks about himself, and whatever the conversation or topic is, he just brings it back to himself. He loves talking about himself. Or number two, there's Mr. Flatterer. And Mr. Flatterer is the guy that you meet who always puffs you up. He always says the lavish things about you, never anything negative about you to your face. Always puffs you up, because he wants you to... Like him. Have you met number three, Mr. Self-Pity? Mr. Self-Pity is is a common person nowadays. They sort of mope around and they they look like they have no happiness, no excitement. They just mope with a self-pity party because they want you to feel sorry for them. Have you met number four, Mr. Gossip? This is, the, this is the information junkie about everyone else. I mean, this is the guy who just can't stop learning about everyone. Or maybe with that, here's the twin, number five, or number, yeah, number five, Mr. Meddler. Mr. Meddler, he has to know everyone's business. Now, what would happen to him? What happened to her? What happened to them? Why did they do that? I can't believe they would do that. And then they want to meddle into the affairs of everyone else. Have you met number six, Mr. Angry? This guy is critical. He's bitter. He's, he's got uncontrolled reactions. He, he's unwholesome and rotten in his words, especially when he doesn't get what he wants. Or then there's number seven. I like this guy. Mr. Seasoned with Grace. Mr. Seasoned with Grace is an edifier. He builds people up. He comforts. He encourages. He wants to emulate Christ. And everything that he says, he knows that he will either drive people farther away from Christ or bring them grace. Closer to Christ. Met people like that? Are you somebody like that? The power of our words. But but not only meeting people like this, we need to know that our tongue takes on many forms. Right? We have our in-person tongue. We talk a lot about in-person things nowadays, right? Post-COVID, right? In-person tongue. Here's what we say to others when we're with them. But then we have our media tongue. We have our media tongue. This is what you say online. This is what you post on Facebook. It's what you post on Twitter. It's what people put out there for all to see. 
But then we not only have our in-person tongue and our media tongue, we also have our email tongue. Well, watch out for the email tongue. This is how we communicate via email, and we might even include texting in there as well. And then we have our talking about tongue. This is what we say about other people. And then we have, number five, our reactive tongue. When you're late and you hit every red light and you react. When you're about to sit down for that meal and a precious child drops the plate and it shatters on the ground. And you got to go clean that out before you eat your hot food. How do we react? There's a reactive tongue. And what James is going to teach us in verses 3 to 5 is that we need to watch and guard our tongues. And we're all there together. We all need to hear this. We all need to be humbled by this because notice what James says in verse 3. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the whole body. In verse 4, look at the ships. Although they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're directed by a very small rudder. Or verse 5, so the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. What we need to know before we go in detail here in these verses, what we need to know is this. Your words reveal What's in your heart? Your words reveal what's in your heart. Let's just take what Jesus said and state it together. Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, let's just make that real practical for you and me. Here's what we need to understand. Word problems, tongue problems, are heart problems. Word problems aren't just vocabulary problems. Word problems are not just technique problems. Word problems in their essential form are heart problems. Somebody says to me, well, then how do I speak better? I've really gotten myself in some bad situations with my, with my mouth at, at work and with my husband and my wife and my children and my neighbors and my whole life is, is kind of going up in smoke right now with all that I've said. What do I do? Well, if you're going to speak better, then you need to have a purer heart. John Calvin simplified it really well when he said, God gave you your tongue To simply reveal your heart. He gave you your tongue to reveal your heart. Now, here's what James is going to do. James is such a great writer. I think he and his brother, Jesus, both do this. They will state truth and then they will illustrate it in very memorable ways. And there's three illustrations right here in our verses of something small but powerful. Something small but powerful. Follow with me. Number one, look at the small bit. It directs the whole horse in verse three. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct the whole body 
as well, right? You get that. You understand that. You've ridden horses before. That small little bit in the mouth of that horse, it's amazing, that can direct the large creature. With a small bit, you can direct that large horse. That's what James says in verse 3. And then he gives another illustration. In verse 4, it's a small rudder. It's a small rudder that's small, but it can direct a big ship. Look at verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. With a very small little rudder, that pilot can steer the whole ship, right? We get that. We understand that. A pilot can direct the ship wherever he wants it to go with that rudder. Small. But boy, is that powerful. Small bit. Small rudder. And then he gives a third illustration, and it's right here at the end of verse 5. It might even be a new paragraph in your Bible. Look at verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire or a small spark. It can ignite a forest fire. I remember in California going to Masters University, I remember one day we were walking from class to class, and it was raining ash. All the fires around us in the northern LA area, I mean, or the, the, the mountains were just ablaze, and all these acres in the northern LA area were ablaze with fire, and I mean, there, there was ash falling from the sky on us, all because of one cigarette, one cigarette that someone dropped. One little spark can ignite a whole forest, set it on fire. And that's what James says at the beginning of verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of your body. Your tongue is like that bit. Your tongue is like that rudder. Your tongue is like that small little spark. It can boast of great things. That little muscle, that little organ in your mouth, that tongue, tiny but powerful. Tiny but powerful. I think a good word for us here is to learn from an elder brother, Jonathan Edwards. He was not not a perfect man. He certainly didn't have all of this down perfect. But here's what he did say in one of his resolutions as a young man. He said, Resolution 70, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. Wouldn't that be a great prayer? Lord, today, as I go about my day at home with those whom I love, at my school, with my classes, with my professor, at my job, with my coworkers, with the strangers, whenever the grocery store, wherever I am, let there be something of benevolence in all that I say. I never think, how have our words been today, this week, this month, in recent times? 
And it is true. It is so true. We all get it. Controlling our speech in whatever form it takes will impact our relationships with others. I mean, churches have been harmed. Marriages have been hurt. Relationships have been marred. I mean, this goes deep. We've all been there. It hurts. But if we, by God's grace and with his help, can control our speech, we will have impacted relationships for good. Let let me illustrate it in this way. Listen carefully. Husband. Husband, when you impatiently respond in sinful anger toward your wife's actions, Oh, the the power that can have. Wife, when when you're critical and harsh of your husband's efforts and you demean him or discourage him, oh, the effect of those words upon your husband. Parents, when you and I get angry and we speak to our children who are fighting in their beds at 10 o'clock at night when they should be sleeping, And we go to them in a rant of rage with a loveless scolding as if it was a personal attack on us. And we let them have it. Or children, boys and girls, when you selfishly will not share with a sibling or you sarcastically respond to dad and mom or if you interrupt others when they are talking, power of words. Christian friend, when, when you see something and, and then it's so easy for us to assume the worst and then we go to other people and talk about it. Well, that can be so hurtful. A church member, when, when we speak critically of the people of Christ and we, we spread disunity in the church, whether it's gossip or slander or did you hear or assumptions, whatever it could be, all oh, the power of our words. Your employees, your workers, when that, when that project is emailed to you and you open that email and there's a new direction. New responsibilities, new tasks that are given to you, and you respond with audible groans, under the breath complaints, grumbling words. Oh, the power of our words. Child of God, when we're impatient, critical, unkind, competitive, hurtful, sarcastic, when we are graceless, when we are self-serving, I mean, we could go on and on and on, and I say that because I... I'm guilty of it. We've been there. Oh, the power of our words. And that's what James has been showing in verses 1 to 5. Yes, not, let not many of you be teachers, but he also says, look at things that are small but so powerful. That bit, that rudder, that spark. Tiny but mighty. You might be sitting here and your mind is going to that thing you said. Or your conscience is convicting you because of what you verbalized recently. You say, well, Jeff, what do I do? 
What do I do? Well, first, we have to consider that our tongue is powerful. We just have to acknowledge that. That's what he says. James 3, our tongue is powerful. Number two, we need to remember Colossians 3, verse 8. And here's what we have to do. We have to control our words. And and you say, ha, that's easy for you to say. Well, hold on. Listen to Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you also, speaking to believers, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. How can he say that? He can say that because Christ, who is your life, died. And you died with him. And he is now alive. And you are now alive in him. You can put these things to death. Oh, Christian, consider that your tongue is powerful. Christian, we need self-control over our words. We also need, number three, this is hard, this is really humbling. Number three, we need to confess. Confess. That's what Jesus said He makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 12 when he's teaching and he says to the disciples, he says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of the good treasure brings what is good and the evil man brings out of the evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Oh, when we sin, to come before the Lord and say, Lord, wash me. Lord, forgive me. Not just vertically, but even horizontally to those whom we've offended. Will you forgive me for my sin? We consider we are to have self-control. We are to confess. And then we need to put on something. We need to start speaking in a certain way. And oh, how I love Colossians 4 and verse 6. We need to put on grace-filled edifying speech. Here's how Paul put it in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. You say, Jeff, is there hope? I mean, maybe somebody's here today. Maybe, maybe you've attended before. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you know that your tongue is destroying your life. Maybe that's the case for someone. Maybe in person or maybe about people or maybe on media. We're going to look at it this week in Psalm 12 on Wednesday. They say, with our tongues we will prevail. My lips are my own. Who is Lord over me? We hear that all the time in our culture. My lips are my own. Who is Lord over me? Paul said in Romans 3.13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of an asp is under their lips. Proverbs 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The prophet Isaiah preached to the people of Israel. They were very religious on the outside, but he said, your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, and your tongue mutters wickedness. But the word wicked, though, let's not be deceived. It doesn't mean just blatant sin. It means worthless. 
Isaiah is reproving the nation of Israel because they're talking in words that are just worthless. It's just empty. It's not, it's not helpful. It's like the Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting, let no rotten talk come out of your mouth. Is there any hope for, for people like us with, with our words and our tongues that are so powerful and we've gotten in so much trouble? Is there hope, Jeff? Yes, because of three ways. In Luke 4.22, all the people are speaking well of Jesus because of the words of grace that fell from his lips. We have a Savior who has spoken words of perfect grace, even when you and I have spoken words that are not full of grace. He has obeyed where we have sinned. He is righteous where we have rebelled. It's like the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah, in his call in chapter 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and Isaiah said, Woe is me! I am, unru- I, am in- I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. And I love these verses. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar, and then he touched my mouth. That must have hurt a little bit. But then we read, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. What a kind God. When we see God in his power and glory as he's revealed in the word and we say, I am so sinful and I fall so far short. It's like your your, your lips are touched. Your sin is forgiven. Your iniquity is taken away. And then there's that amazing little verse right here in Ephesians chapter 5. When Paul is writing to the believers in verse 4, and he says, There should be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Well, if I'm not going to do that, what should I do? But rather giving of May that be the kind of language that comes out of our mouth. Do you believe that God really can transform you? Even Christians, we need to hear this. I mean, can the Lord really transform us? I mean, can we be that kind of person in James chapter 3, verse 2, who is a perfect man, able to control the whole body? Not sinless, but complete, mature, growing. Can we actually become that? Can a reviler become a worshiper? Certainly, we ask the thief on the cross, right? Can a liar become a disciple? Absolutely. Just ask Matthew, the chief, the tax collector in Matthew 9. Well, what about a blasphemer? Somebody who takes God's name in vain, can he become a beloved child of God? Ask Paul the Apostle. What about a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips? 
Can we be useful in ministry? Certainly, just ask Isaiah. What about an uncontrolled madman? Can he become a humble missionary for Christ? Sure, we ask the Gerasene demoniac. A couple thousand demons were cast out of him. What about a sexually immoral seducer? Can she become a cleansed, purified worshiper of God? Absolutely. Look at Rahab the harlot. We want to control the tongue. We want to be mature. We want to be that complete man, able to bridle the whole body as well. May God help us. Watch out, O teachers. And watch your tongue. But I want to close by telling you the story of a man. His story is in the Bible. He actually wrote a book in the Bible after his own name. He was a man. He was a prophet. He was also a priest. His name was a great name. It means God the Mighty One strengthens. His name is Ezekiel. We have the account of Ezekiel, and what we read in the account of Ezekiel, especially in these early chapters, in chapter 1, we have this amazing account of Ezekiel's sight of the awesome vision of the glory of God. I mean, it is so great, so awesome, so powerful, so splendid, that he falls flat on his face at the end of the chapter, because he sees the glory of God. Well, then when he's seen God rightly high and lifted up with this vision, he's able to be useful for ministry. You've got to have a big view of God if you're going to serve God rightly in ministry. Well, then in chapters 2 and 3 of Ezekiel's prophecy, we have the call and the commission of the man, Ezekiel. The call and the commission. He, he was a man. He was a weak man, a frail man, a human man, an imperfect man. How is he going to be effective as a prophet in God's ministry? Ezekiel gives us a clue as to how you and I can speak well. Let me, it's real simple. I'll give it to you. In chapter 2, verse 8, God tells Ezekiel to open his mouth and eat the scroll. He takes the scroll, he eats it, and then God tells him, you need to go and speak my words to my people. That's a pattern for us. You need to get in God's word, fill your heart with it, So that you can give out God-honoring words. That's the call and commission of Ezekiel. That's how we speak better. We need to get in God's word, as it were. Take and eat God's word. Fill our minds and our hearts with God's truth. Get in the word so that we can give out God-honoring words. 
It's the prayer of David. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, church family, as we close, as we conclude our time, here's the very simple takeaway for the day. Get in God's word so that you can give out God-honoring words. The Lord will help us to do that for his glory. Let's pray.